You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus, starting at $3 a month. Get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shout-outs, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to GatorsBreakdown.SupportingCast.FM to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I am your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Bringing you plenty. It's kind of merging of the podcast. Fall camp is starting. And, of course, recruiting. We'll take a look back at the busy, busy weekend that was. And it helped me do it. Co-host Will Miles. Will, it's been been a couple weeks since we've been together. Like uh, SEC media days, recruiting all last week. We're back together now as fall camp starts for the Gators. Football is finally here. Damn man, we're first preseason games are kicking off this week. The, yeah, the Jag, yeah. local Jags here, so we get I get to I get to see them uh, Thursday night. Well, that's not real football. It's not real still, football. <laughs> you know, football. Football's coming, and uh, you know we're a month away, and got my plane tickets to come down, bringing my seven year old. So he's excited about the season. He's asking every day, "When are we coming down to Florida?" And uh, so it's going to be fun, right? I mean, th- this is why we care about recruiting. It's why we talk about this stuff all off season, is for what's coming up in September. So I'm excited that September's coming up. We're going to get to see the Napier era, Napier era start. And it is exciting. And it's, it's an exciting time, an exciting time in the recruiting trail, too. There's been a lot of news there. And so, uh, you know, it's exciting to see what's going on there and exciting to see that pick up. Yeah, we get to hear from three players today and the coaching staff. Uh, on this episode, we'll just concentrate on what Billy Napier had to say. And then later on this week, I'll, I'll uh, circle back around and we'll get to hear from the coaching staff and, and the players that spoke at uh, Florida Media Day. Uh, only three players. Uh, so, no, not, not a lot there. Uh, go back to SEC Media Days if you uh, want to hear more. But also, uh, I did post a preview on YouTube today of a chat we had with Derek Wingo on Gators Breakdown Plus. Really good chat with him uh, last week. And you get a preview of it there on YouTube. Uh, and then if you want to listen to the whole thing, you can join uh, Gators Breakdown Plus. And if you join Gators Breakdown Plus, also have a chance to win uh, two Utah tickets, a pair of Utah tickets there uh, for current members and new members. So hit that like button, hit that subscribe button if you're watching live on YouTube right now. Leave a comment there. Of course, plenty to discuss with fall camp starting and all the recruiting news. So we'll get the pressers today, all those press conferences. And uh, as I said, 
you, if you take them all as a whole, and it's everything that we've heard since Billy Napier took over, and going back to spring and all the press conferences we got there, discipline, detail, and accountability. And I can't tell you how many times the word socks was said because that seemed to be a huge focus, you know, of the color socks everybody has to wear. It has to be one color out there. Not everybody – everybody has to look the same. You, you, you don't look different out there. Uh, so we'll see some, uh, you know, uniform in uniforms uh, right there for uh, the Gators. But, yeah, still the – the harping on, and it was nice to hear it from the players, stressing it still of the discipline, detail, and accountability for this team. Yeah, I mean, look, that has been the moniker since Napier came in, and really, sort of the rub about or the the scuttle about Napier before he even came in was that he wasn't going to put up with some of the stuff that uh, that's gone on over the last few years. And so, I'm looking forward to it. Right now, we'll see whether that translates to on the field. We'll see whether when guys make mistakes, because guys are going to make mistakes, both physically and mentally, they're going to make mistakes. And so, we'll see when they make those mistakes, do they get pulled off the field? If you have a game next year where there's eight false starts, like there was against Kentucky last year, I think there were even more than eight against Kentucky last year, then all the discipline talk is just that. It's talk, right? And so that, I think, is the thing that we're looking for is there's been a lot of talk about discipline, and then the reality is is that the expectations have been set that this is going to be a very disciplined team, and so that reality is going to have to match when we see them out on the field. Um, because if it doesn't, then we'll start wondering, <laughs> was it all just talk? But, you know, we, we've heard from different players about what the discipline means, not just the Sox, but also during SEC Media Day, I think it was Ventrell Miller who talked about having that it's required that they carry around a notebook and a mm-hmm. pen and paper you know, everywhere they go so that they always have the opportunity to write something down so they don't have an excuse of saying, hey, I forgot or I didn't write that down or, or you know, it wasn't clear to me or something like that. And so, look, the little things do matter. And we've even seen it right when Napier came in, fixing the parking, fixing the uh, the living accommodations, fixing, um, you know, fixing the meals, all those sorts of things. And so those little details do add up. Um you know, we'll we'll obviously we'll see what happens when they get out on the field because against Utah, they're going to have to be a disciplined team because if they go out there and commit seven penalties and you know false starts all over the place and, and pass interferences and leave guys open or broken coverages, then they're not going to win that game. So discipline, I think, is going to be a key. And I think if they can be disciplined, then the game against Utah is certainly one that is winnable. Um, obviously, it's not a guarantee, but I think it is a winnable game given the talent level of both teams. And you know, we're going to talk about Richardson. Richardson back there if, if he takes the next step he gives them a good shot too yeah well and, and i think that accountability goes both ways you start looking at the things you bring up there and i do wonder this staff uh you know there was um you go back to the last staff and it was accountability as far as leaving players on the field now if they mess up you didn't turn to a backup you left the, the guys out there you know I, i'm eager to see that side of the accountability and it has to be there from the players you know we know and we've heard you look to you got you know you look to the guy to your left you look to the guy to your right you want to play for those guys and you want to play for your coaches that been coaching you up for the last eight nine months but you know now you got i think you go to the other side of it, there's accountability on these coaches as well if you don't live up to the discipline. You don't live up to the detail. You get the all of these penalties. Then you know, is there a chance we, you, you, they're yanked off the field? You know, there's not a lot of history with these players. They didn't recruit. You know, ninety percent of this roster uh, that's out there for the Gators right now. So I think the accountability will kind of work both ways. And I'm eager to see. You know. Of course, that could be some give and take. I don't expect you know one holding call and a guy comes off the field or anything like that. But you know, shoe tosses, you know, and a guy comes off the field or you know, egregious, you know, a penalty after penalty after penalty on one guy or one position group. You know, I, I would like to 
Well, hopefully we don't see it. <laughs> well, hopefully there is not those circumstances, but we know it, it, it is football. You're going to have that situation situation to where more than likely one guy's going to have to come off the field, somebody else is going to have to come on uh, and, and have some kind of example set for for your team. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it goes in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, last year it was really easy to sort of pile on the Grantham, but there were times where the offense didn't carry its water uh, either, that's right? True. And, and from an accountability perspective, the coach has to get up there and take responsibility for the things that are going poorly, whether it's the offensive or the defensive side of the ball. And I felt like there were times, especially when it came to recruiting, that that Dan Mullen didn't take accountability for the things that were going on within the program. And, and, um, one, and one more, um, we had more yards. <laughs> well, we certainly did. Oh my God, Dave! I, I'm, I'm glad we're on to 2022. Um, but uh, so accountability starts there, right? It starts with the timeouts against against Alabama in the SEC championship game a couple years ago. No showing against Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. Like those things are coaching accountability, and Napier and his staff are going to have to hold themselves accountable. But then it goes to unit accountability, right? So you think about the defense a couple years ago, not ever being able to get lined up correctly, mm-hmm. not stopping Texas A&M at all, not stopping. Old Miss at all, not stopping LSU at all, not stopping Alabama at all, and all of those things adding up to just really putrid defensive performances multiple times that year. But it all comes back to a discipline where nobody was lining up correctly to start with, and so why would we expect them to be prepared when the ball is snapped? Um, from the offensive side of the ball, hey, you're going to run the right route. You're going to go get it. The quarterback's going to send it to the right spot. Quarterback's going to take the deep shots when it's open. You know, The quarterback's going to pull it and run it when he needs to run it, all those different things as well. And when you're outplayed by somebody who's your backup, you know, whether you're out for an injury or whether you're out because you were ineffective, when you're outplayed by a guy who's backup accountability in that, you know, you're going to do what's best for the team as a coach and you're going to put the best player in there and the best set of players in there to help win the game. So I think, you know, it sort of cascades down. And I think one of the things that you saw last year is that sort of it all came to a head. And I don't think this Florida team was as bad as what we saw on the team last year, on the field last year. But I do believe that the accountability did start to roll downhill. And, you know, when you start, wondering is the guy next to you going to do what he's supposed to do then all of a sudden you start trying to cover for him and when you start trying to cover for him well now there's a cutback lane or now there's um now now you're now you've gone too far upfield and somebody can can fit a counter in front of you and all those sorts of things so um i'm expecting that to be better but certainly that's something that napier has harped over and over and over again so if it's not better i think it's something that should worry us pretty pretty early on because it's not as though the players haven't heard it so the question then is, do they buy in? And if we see better discipline, better accountability, then we'll know that they bought in. Well, kind of, one more question before we move on then. Like, you know, it, it is a coaching change. You make a coaching change because of the way things are trending or, or, or what happened. And, of course, culture is always the first word that comes up. But are we – could we be making too much out of discipline, detail, and accountability? And I know we're all looking for things that can be better. We're all looking for things that are different from the last staff – is there a chance we're making too much out of this? I mean, of course, we hear the coaches and the players bring it up over and over again. So that's one reason we are bringing it up. But we've brought it up plenty of times ourselves. Are, are, are we making too much of a – are we making too big a, big a deal out of you know, discipline and accountability? 
Um, you know, if, if Florida had only lost to Georgia and Alabama, I would say no. But Florida lost to Missouri, Kentucky, and South Carolina last year and damn near got beat by Sanford. Yep. And so I think when you look at that, you go, <laughs> there isn't a talent excuse right. for this team losing those games or almost losing the game when it comes to San Diego, what, 52 in that game? There's, there's no excuse for being down late in the second half against a team like Sanford. There's no excuse for going out and put, putting up a complete egg against South Carolina to the point where, you know, I mean, people that I knew who were just gator to the core were going, this is unacceptable. Like people who have been like, no, I don't want to fire coaches. I think it's bad to be on coaches. Will, why are you so negative about recruiting all the time? Like people who are just on me all the time after that South Carolina game went, all right, I see it. I'm done. Like, yeah. I it. mean, that was and, I was sitting in the gator section in that stadium. That was, it was a shift right there. There was the shift. And, and so look, I, I think, I don't think accountability fixes all of it. Right. But I think it's the start of a healthy organization. And, you know, we saw it in 2020 where the defense was terrible. Everybody looked and said, surely Grantham's gone. And they kept him around. And so right there you have established that poor performance does not have consequences. Now, they could have kept Grantham around. They could have demoted him. They could have brought in a co-assistant defensive coordinator. They could have done a lot of things that said, hey, there's going to be accountability for performances that are not up to standard. But they didn't do any of that. And so what that told everyone was that substandard performances are okay. And you can't do that. (laughs) When you do that in a sport like football, where you get out there and for 70 70 to 75 plays, the other team is trying to run you over, at some point you go, well, why do I want to get run over here? I'm going (laughs) to sidestep this offensive tackle, or I'm going to sidestep this pulling guard. And the minute you sidestep him, there's a cutback lane, and ooh, there goes the the counter all the way to the end zone. And Todd Blackledge is laughing at you on national TV. So um, (laughs) accountability is not everything, right? I mean, there there were certainly physical mistakes. There were mental mistakes. There was probably strength and conditioning stuff that they needed to be better. There certainly was just, in general, talent deficits when they played certain teams. But I think it's the starting point. And so, you know, when you're talking about building a culture within a program, just knowing that what your coach says is actually going to be what happens and understanding that if you step out of line, there will be consequences is a big part of you getting better. And so I I think it's an important part of it. I don't think it's all of it, but I think it's an important part. Yeah, I think uh, you go a long way, I think, with that trust there. Uh, I'm not sure how much they trust that they were put in the right position time and time again uh, underneath uh, under the last staff. So, all right, uh, well, you know, yeah, the players, they'll be pretty busy coming up. It, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be a carnival out there coming up. <laughs> this is training camp, uh, training camp with a new staff that you know wants to instill that discipline, the detail, and the accountability out there. So, you know, they'll be going away. They'll be staying in a hotel with the staff. Uh, pretty much the entire day is scheduled, you know, out to hit the field in the film room. But you know, it's much more than that too. When you hit training camp, and it's helped this team bond uh, over the, the the next few weeks leading up to the first game versus Utah, and that's what this camp would be about. Not going to be a whole lot of fun early on for these Gators before they kind of get into game routine uh, in, in a few weeks or so. So, all right, let's get started with what Billy Napier had to say and then a lot of roster building, uh, but was asked, you know, does this roster have the depth if injuries occur? All those things are very much to be determined. You know, I mean, I think we've got a core group of veterans. If you really evaluate the experience, how many plays have the players played in games? Right. I mean, um, I think we've got a, a core group that has some experience. And then I think there's a big 
chunk of the roster that has minimal experience. Uh, maybe that's just on special teams. Uh, maybe there's little experience at all. Then you got a group of rookies that just showed up, right? I mean, I think we kind of have three categories of players. Um, and I think that's what we're getting ready to find out, right? That's what we're getting ready to try to coach and develop is um, and try to get players in position. But, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know that there's an answer to that. I think it's to be determined. Uh, well, three levels of players, experienced, inexperienced, and freshmen, rookies coming in. So I asked the question to you. I'll answer it too. But given what Billy Napier had to say there, where do you feel best and where is your biggest concern as far as experience, inexperience, and kind of what he uh, explained to us there? Defensive tackle. It's been my biggest concern all year long. It's been my biggest concern for like three years now. Um, and, you know, and one more I before think, that. I'll go into more detail later this week when we talk defense. But, you know, so to kind of clarify some things, Dervon Dexter did say today he's playing more defensive end. This is a 3-4, so there's still kind of, you know, it's a blend between defensive end, defensive tackle, and a 3-4. But that does, if you go back to the spring game, you could see it. Dexter's on the edge, and it is Des Watson, you know, on the quote-unquote inside nose over the center uh, more so than Dexter is. So it does you know, lend itself, if he is going to play end, quote-unquote end, yeah, the need for defensive tackle, it, you know, it, it, it heightens a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my concern actually isn't with the top end guys. I think Watson will probably play pretty well. I think Dexter will play pretty well. Maybe they end up being all SEC players. And I still think I'm concerned about the amount of depth on the <laughs> defensive line. There isn't any experience there. They've had guys transfer out who were at defensive tackle, who were young and who hadn't necessarily gotten a whole lot of run yet. And they haven't brought anybody in. Yep. I mean, they brought in McClellan there at defensive tackle as a, as a freshman, obviously a highly ranked defensive tackle. But I mean, do you want to be relying as a, one of your one of your immediate backups on the defensive line with a true freshman when you're playing that stretch against LSU, Georgia, Texas A&M? Um, you know, that's rough, especially since it's late in the year, right? I mean, maybe if you played those three to open the year, yeah. you'd be like, okay, well, at least we'll get that performance before before they get into the rigors of the schedule and, and get dinged up and injured. I mean, but that's the thing, right, is every SEC schedule has injuries, especially on the offensive and defensive lines. We saw it last year where the offensive line was great for the first six or seven games of the year. Ethan White goes down. Um, Stuart Reese and uh, Gene DeLance got dinged up a little bit, and all of a sudden the offensive line took a step back and the offense couldn't do anything, um, along with just sort of the general malaise of the program at that point once they sort of got past the LSU and Georgia games. It's entirely possible that that'll happen again. I mean, there are a few areas I'm concerned about, but defensive tackle, defensive line specifically, um, just and and again, it's not because of top end talent; it's because of depth and experience, right? I mean, are people going to do what they're supposed to do? Are they going to do their job when they're put in there? And then, are they talented enough to do it, even if they know what they're supposed to do? And we haven't had that question answered, at least not against the likes of the beast of the SEC. Right, I mean, you have to bring up the names there, and it's those guys we have not heard a whole lot. I, I mean, can you just because they're Gators? Of course, we we, we want them to do good, to do good. But if I threw out, okay, Jalen Lee, you don't know what to expect. Jalen Humphreys, you don't know what to expect. Griffin McDowell, who has been ping pong defensive line, offensive line, he's another name. Are you, are you confident? I mean, right? I mean, I, I think you 
McClellan's going to have to come along fast, I think, you know, if, if, if it plays out that way. Now, Jalen Lee, we've heard some nice things through spring and, and, and fall, but that's still one that we have to see come along. I mean, even Des Watson to a point. I mean, it's big size. He's got to get in game shape. How much can he actually play? I mean, on the official roster, he's over 400 pounds. Does that, I mean, is that really what they want him? Is, is he going to be able to play a, a whole lot? I mean, I know if you, if you go back and watch the spring game, Dexter and him are on the field a lot for that orange defense. Uh, but you know, how, how many plays, effective plays, can he go out there and play? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think – um, we've been talking about it all off season. We talked about it all last off season, right? And they brought in a bunch of a bunch of transfers to try to plug holes in the dam. They decided not to do that, or have not been able to do that this year. Um, and, and so they're going to have to go with who they got. And I think I think a lot of us are very comfortable with Gervon Dexter. I think a lot of us are are comfortable with Des Watson. I think at that point you go, I don't know. I don't know what we have. And so when you talk about experience and you talk about game experience and then you talk about um, freshmen, I look at it and I go, we're getting to freshmen awfully quickly when we start mm. looking at defensive tackle. And the last time we did that, you know, and look, you could say you know, Jervon Dexter probably should have been more of a strong side defensive end anyway. He's not your, you know, he's not your space eater defensive tackle anyway. Uh, when, when you think of you know, Terrence Cody or Alabama or, you know, or something, I'm, I'm just going, but, you know, Dexter's a five-star, so that's why I'm comparing him to somebody like Cody who was, you know, all-world there at, at, at Alabama. You know, he's probably, maybe has been playing out of position for his size the last couple of years, so now him at edge uh, in, in this new defense will help him. But if those other guys aren't showing up, is it Dexter having to slide back in? And play more defense, you know, pure defensive tackle over a center against guards uh, a whole lot. He's going to get double teamed uh, a good bit because of what he's been able to prove and what everybody thinks he can be. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of questions there. I know we, like you said, we we have brought it up plenty of times, but there's so many angles to it. Of can you now keep if you want to play Dexter at edge or end, not edge, but if you if you want to play him at end, you're going to have to have help there in the middle to be able to keep him there and not force him inside to, to play out of position. So, you know, big, uh, I'm ready to see these defensive ends. Uh, the, kind of, you know, you men me yelling, Sap, Boone. I'm excited for those guys, but those guys also have to go and <laughs> prove it. But I feel better about their potential than I do uh, there at defensive tackle. But, um, well, one more question I do want to bring up, and then maybe this could also kind of maybe go before go where we feel best. I feel really good about the running back room, but now Naquan Wright gets inserted into the rotation. I do wonder how it, how, how it works out there. You know, now he's the most experienced back on the roster, but did miss most of spring. Very limited. How does he fit in to now DeMarcus Bowman gone? But Lingard may be the best all-around back all spring, but Montreal Johnson coming on very late. Experience in this offense there with Billy Napier. And I think Florida... I do wonder how they're going to figure out over the next four weeks how to best use these three running backs. Is it, of course, there's going to be situational. There, there always is. But is it going to be based on field? Is it going to be a set rotation? Uh, I, I am eager. Uh, and maybe, and of course, you know, if you're good coaches, this is going to change game by game. But I think if by the time we go around to Florida State and the end of the season, will we be able to tell when each running back should be in a game? Do they have their own skill set? I'm eager to see how they figure out running back. Yeah, I mean, so I've always been a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit 
I don't know, negative towards Naquan Wright, not because I don't think he's fun to watch and not because I don't think he has big plays, but because when you look at his overall numbers, they really aren't that impressive. So he averaged 4.3 yards per rush last year. He averaged 3.9 the year before. That's on 130 carries now. You're looking at a guy who's averaging just barely over four yards a rush. By comparison, Damian Pierce averaged 5.7 last year. Yeah. So, you know, the same offensive line, the same general situation, almost the same number of carries, and you're getting way more production out of Pierce than he did out of right, which makes me think that a guy like Lingard or a guy like Johnson are going to have an opportunity here to be the main bellwethers. Now, the one thing that Wright does really, really well is catches the ball out of the backfield. So screen passes, uh-huh. getting him out of the space. Once you get him to space he's really really good but when the offensive line misses a block and you need somebody to put down their shoulder and lean forward for a couple extra yards that's just not him mm-hmm. and so you know i i do think that's a good thing in some capacity because it means you've got two different types of guys and maybe even three different types of guys if you think of lingard as like the the lightning and then you think of johnson as the thunder and then you think of of right as sort of the change of pace third down back somebody who's going to be able to run um run around on a linebacker and get open. Um, you know, so I, I think there's an opportunity to do that there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think we were all excited to see what DeMarcus Bowman might do and the fact that he he left before he ever really got to see any of that stuff materialize is a little bit disappointing. Uh, but, again, Naquan Wright has shown he's a good player who can contribute. But I think he's also shown that he's not a difference maker on the offensive side of the ball. Like, he's not somebody who's going to take a screen pass and take it 98 yards for a touchdown. And so – with that being said, if you need a first down and you can swing it out to him, great. He's going to catch the ball. He's going to catch it reliably. If you need him to go over the middle, he's going to catch it. He's going to catch it reliably. But if we're looking for big plays out of the running game, it's going to have to come from Lingard or it's going to have to come from Johnson. I don't think it probably comes from Wright. All right. But, yeah, I mean, looking at this this offense and looking at that, that stable of backs, and yeah, I feel pretty good there. Um I don't know if I say feel best, but I, I do like where they're going. But Naquan, you know, looking at the roster, I still uh, that's one place I would I would look at. Would that's one storyline I think going into fall camp is how do you insert Naquan right after missing a whole lot of spring uh, in there, and now Bowman gone as well. Certainly a, a storyline there, but it's crazy to think. Will I mean feeling best? Probably probably offensive line. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, uh, you know, as much as we've. Um, down that position the last few years, you know. Besides quarterback, if you want to look at Anthony Richardson, of course, I, you're not going to get any, you know, fight back from me there. I'm just kind of going by position group uh, more so in you know, the offensive line. So, uh, well, you, you've down the offensive line position. I'm the one who wrote a glowing yeah. offensive line piece, and then everybody got injured and all fell apart <laughs> last year. But uh, look, I think Ethan White has an opportunity to be an All SEC player. I'm not sure if he'll get the pub because I think a lot of that publicity might go to Osiris Torrance. When Flor- if Florida's offensive line is able to blow people off the ball, but go watch that Tennessee tape last year. Mm-hmm. Aguacan and White and Reese did an unbelievable job against the interior of Alabama's defense in a way that nobody else really did throughout the year. Now, we could have used it a little bit earlier in that game, right, because they really weren't able to take it over mm-hmm. until later. But they they were even able to run the ball early on. They had to settle for a field goal early. There were a couple of fourth downs that Florida wasn't able to convert, where if they converted them, then maybe the game's at least closer. Um, you know, a couple of interceptions that turned into – or at least one interception that turned into a touchdown. They were down early, obviously. But, you know, the fact that they were still able to run the ball even after – after falling so far behind and able to do so so effectively, I think portends well for the guys on the interior of that offensive line. I think Torrance is certainly an upgrade, but I think White being back healthy is a big deal. The offensive line really fell off when he got injured last year. But if we're talking about units that I'm most comfortable with, I'd say it's defensive back. I mean, right. you, think, you think about Marshall coming back, you got Trevez Johnson, 
you you've got Rashad Torrance, you've got Trey Dean, um, you know, you've you even got Avery Helm, you've got um, and I'll get into it, but Devin Moore is turning heads, Will, as a true freshman at, at corner. So don't be surprised at some point if he's if he's pushing for playing time. That's that's the type of talk I'm hearing various places right now on Devin Moore. Great. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's already a position of strength. So if you got somebody turning heads who's going to come in there and, and, and essentially steal playing time from guys who were very, very effective last year. I mean, I think, I think Florida's defense against the pass last year was like 19th when it came to yards per attempt. They couldn't stop anybody on the ground. They were like 90th, but I think it would be 85th. But they were they were <laughs> they were pretty good through the air. And you start looking at the guys when they're in coverage. You weren't all this, you know, 2020. You were afraid if those guys were in coverage. Now you're like, okay, I can deal with them in coverage. I hope they don't have to come up and stop the run, but I can deal with them in coverage. And so a little bit more toughness, a little bit more, um, a little bit more. Um, attention to detail in terms of the scheme and quite honestly, a little bit more accountability like we talked about earlier. And I think this has, this has the opportunity to be a really good unit. Is it going to be fantastic? Mm, I think they have an opportunity to, I think losing Kyrie Elam obviously is a big deal, but I think Jason Marshall has the opportunity to step up. You've also got Kimber coming in as a transfer mm-hmm. who was, who had a starting job. He had won the starting job at Georgia last year before he got injured. So, um, you know, there's some high level talent there at defensive back. There's some pro there's some production there at defensive back. And when you think about Napier's definition that you showed there in terms of, you know, not only do these guys have experience in the program, but they've also produced, I'm, um, you know, you might say that the ceiling for the defensive backs is is a curiosity, right? That are they really going to be able to rise up and replace a guy like Elam? But I think we can say that the floor is pretty high. That they're going to. I'm not worried that this unit is just going to fall apart. Right. Right. There are some places where I, I mean, look, if Dexter goes down with an injury in the second game of the year, you know, I hope not. And and you know, I'm not putting a hex on him here. But you know, if somebody important on the defensive line goes down with an injury in the first or second game, I mean, you can you can envision a scenario where they're like you know, having open tryouts for guys, you know, to come in like they did for kickers a few years ago, just because there's nobody left from a depth perspective. Same thing at wide receiver, right? I think wide receiver is a very, very thin position and and they're going to have to, you know, Ricky Pearsall's a big addition from the standpoint of he's, he's produced, but he's also a big addition from the standpoint of he's a body. And, uh, you know, the, that at defensive back is nothing that I have a worry about. I do not have a they can sustain an injury or two and still be a really, really good unit. And so I think when you think about sort of the question you asked in terms of where I feel comfortable, that's the place I feel most comfortable. All right. Where well, I think one where a lot of people feel comfortable is at quarterback and Napier was asked about Anthony Richardson's NFL hype and and kind of leads off we'll we'll get into this because it's kind of funny, but you know, program expectations with a lot of media coverage out there. You know, that's one of the things I'm learning about University of Florida, right? We probably uh, got more media coverage. It's like being an NFL team in the Northeast, you know, if that makes sense. But, uh, you know, I think part of the job of a player like Anthony, and really any player um, that's had success, okay, or any player that maybe's made a few mistakes, right, or maybe didn't perform the way they wanted to, uh, is really not allowing some of this noise to affect your process, right, in terms of how you prepare your character, your values, your expectations, your standards, right? I think when your standards and expectations are uh, much higher than anyone on the, out- on the outside could have for you, I think that gives you an opportunity, right? So uh, I think Anthony is 
uh, very aware. It's one of the things I really like about him. I think he has good awareness, good self-awareness that he is an inexperienced player, that he has potential, that, but also that he can improve. There's lots to learn. Uh, getting comfortable with his role as a leader, um, the importance and value of his example, right, to the other players. Um, I think quarterback in, in particular, there's there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with that. So uh, Anthony's focused on the work, um, and there's certainly a lot of work to do, right? Uh, improving as a leader, growing and maturing as a person, very much a young person, um, you know, increasing his football intelligence, developing his skill. Uh, there's just so much more out there for the young man, right? I mean, Anthony has lots of work to do here. So um, I think he, he is uh, fully aware of that, understands that, comprehends those things, and has worked extremely hard. So um, I think his focus is on the work, and that's exactly where it should be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think that work's going to pay off. I'm I'm big on on Anthony Richardson. I'm, I'm I am buying into the, the to the hype there of of him living 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 up to one of those you know high level NFL draft picks there. But you know to go along with that, and then something we didn't get to see last year because he didn't necessarily get the snaps that we wanted him to get is Napier talked about you know being a leader uh, right there and. You know, how are you going to be a leader when the hits start happening? You know, what is the effect there? We, we have not seen that from a starter position there uh, at, 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 with Anthony Richardson. You know, it's a close fourth quarter game against Utah or Kentucky. How's he going to respond? Uh, you know, he told us at SEC Media Days he's not the rah-rah uh, type leader. He's not the get in your face. You know, he doesn't have to be. You can calmly lead in tough situations. You don't have to be the rah-rah Tim Tebow jumping up and down type of, of quarterback out there to, to be a leader. But – you know, there's tough situations where he has to lead in late games that are going to come up. We're going to have to see that. And for as talented as I think he is and, and can be, we have no idea how those leadership traits uh, will, will, will come about in tough game situations. So I disagree a little bit from the standpoint of last year had to be tough. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you're sitting there, you're outperforming the guy who's in front of you. <laughs> yeah. He's your friend, so you don't necessarily want to throw him under the bus. You know that if you do throw him under the bus, one, it's going to lead to less snaps for you, but two, that you know all of a sudden you can disrupt the locker room, right? I think Richardson, for the most part, went out there, did what he was asked to do. Afterwards, was made sure that he was was photographed with Emory Jones, made sure everyone knew that those two were close. Um, you know, whether that was intentional or whether they actually are close like that is, is kind of irrelevant. I'm not sure that that quarterback battle, now granted the season went down the tank, but I'm not sure that quarterback battle could have gone, uh, like the quarterback situation could have gone any better. I mean, you know, you sit there and you think about like Steve Young and Joe Montana, those guys weren't talking to each other when they were competing <laughs> for the job under Bill Walsh. You think about Jacoby Brissett and Jeff Driscoll. Driscoll wins the job. Brissett's immediately out of there. You think about 
um, a lot of the different battles that have gone on in, in, in quarterbacking history. And these guys aren't great friends. I mean, every time they bring in a new guy for Aaron Rodgers and in green Bay, he's like, that's not my job. I'm not teaching that guy what's going on. So I think from a leadership perspective, no one on the team can get mad if someone else is playing in front of them, even if they think they should and, and create a scene. Because Anthony Richardson went through that last year, and he can walk up to him. And he, one, he knows what they're going through, and two, he can tell him to shut up because he because he was quiet last year and did what he was supposed to do for the most part until he got injured dancing. But and know, maybe even recent history do. with uh, Kyle Trask. Absolutely. So I think I think from a noise perspective, it's funny that Napier brings that up. There's no way there could be more noise this year than last year. Last year we had <laughs> expectations, right? Last year it's we're coming off the SEC championship game. The expectation is to beat Georgia again and take another step forward. And obviously, I think there were people, us included, going, well, let's let's bump the brakes a little bit here. But we'll know after the Alabama game. And then even that one was close enough that we were still excited after it. Um and so I think there were expectations last year and then sort of the decimation after the losses that kept piling up and Richardson was bringing the hope. But, and so in some ways he got to see the positive side of things, but you know, as close as he was to Emory Jones, he also got to see the negative aspect of that sort of stuff. He's had to go through a coaching change. So he's not surprised at how much media there is at Florida. Believe me, like he knows how much there is. He knows what the pressure's like. He knows what that crucible's like. And, you know, I think he learned in two ways. Last year against LSU, he he played fantastic, but threw an awful interception on the last on on the last drive. So when he had that opportunity, he kind of forced the ball downfield. You can argue about whether the ball should have been knocked down, but whatever. Yeah, you can't throw that ball up there like that. And then the other thing is the Georgia game. I think he got humbled because he was in that game going, "All right, I'm not going to be able to win this one by myself." Yeah, and the LSU and game found- was the game before that, you know. And you lit the world on fire, but then you go through two weeks of practice where you don't know if you're the guy. <laughs> and then get thrown to the wolves. Well, so again, I go back to I think he's had enough experience on the field yeah. to know that he's capable. I think he's had enough experience on the field to know that he can that it, he can be put on his butt at any time by somebody who's a really really good team that's out there, right? And so uh, if I were you know if you're looking at Richardson, you go okay, he knows what can be done against a simple defense. And now he's got to learn what to do against a defense like Georgia. I think we're in a pretty prime position to see somebody take a step forward. It would be my view of the situation and that, you know, look, if they lose to Utah, if they lose to Kentucky, um, you know, yeah, people like us and people other in other places are going to start complaining about it and there's going to be noise. But that noise isn't going to be directed at Anthony Richardson. And if it is, he's just going to ignore it. He ignored it all last year. So I, I think from a from a leadership perspective, last year actually does sort of portend the quiet leadership style that he is going to bring into this year, just because, I mean, he lived through a season that I think none of those guys want to live through ever again. And just pointing out that, Hey, you know, I had to sit there and wait my turn when we all knew I should be playing. (laughs) I think that, that, that sets the stage for if somebody else is starting to cause problems because they're not playing, even then they think they should the leader of the team, the guy who's the best player in the team did it last year. And so how can you complain? Yeah, I guess more my unit was situational, and that LSU game does come to mind. You know, that was back and forth. You you kept fighting, as you said. You know, maybe at the pass you don't you don't throw there at the end, but trying to make a play happen. You know, those are things. First are, interception was way worse than the last. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but you know, it, it's it, now it's for him to go out there, make the other ten players on offense that much better. Um, can it, it feed off and bleed off into the defense as well. You know, get them. 
you know, the last couple of years have had to be pretty tough. And as you said, you know, the imbalance of, you know, offense being better than defense in 2020. And then Will, as you said, you know, going last year, what there were times where the offense didn't hold uh, that they're up there into the bargain and you know, the defense probably let down in some situations. So, you know, is, a, is Anthony Richardson that lightning rod player where the other 10 players on offense, he elevates their play, but the defense also feeds off of that, you know, and the true – True team leader, not just the offensive leader as quarterback, but team leader as well. But um, you know, there's just things I'm looking for there from Anthony Richardson. We'll, we'll get, I think, plenty of opportunity early on versus their two big opponents, Utah and Kentucky, to see what type of player, what type of leader uh, Anthony Richardson uh, will be out there in, in the swamp. So, well, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> Napier, he admitted, he admitted this at SEC Media Days too, but to begin that soundbite there of, you know, the media coverage uh, here at Florida. You know, you have podcasts like mine and yours and your website and all the other podcasts out there. And, you know, Florida, I mean, th- there is a ton of coverage uh, for this football team. And I think, of course, with the way recruiting was going in, what, you know, May and early parts of June, I think that's – and social media, of course, goes along with that. I think uh, Billy Napier learned pretty quick, you know, this isn't Louisiana. This is uh, – the, the, the way this football team is covered uh, may be second to none. I don't know a, I don't know a, a podcast network out there for a team uh, with all the various podcasts out there uh, and, and websites that, that cover a team like this. And I know there's some out there, but we're, we're close to this situation. Uh, but it is, it, it, it is, we hear all the time how demanding the University of Florida job is. And part of it is you know, just the coverage that the team gets. Well, he, I, I got to question his background work if he didn't know what kind of coverage <laughs> he was going to get, considering that the guy he called to ask about the program had previously <laughs> been accused of humping a shark. I think, you know, at some point you got to like, you got you to take a step back and go, okay, I, I think maybe I'm, I know what I'm getting into given the, given that he had Paul McElwain and spent time with him. So, uh, you know, I, well, yeah, and then, bit, yeah, that would mean the death threats played. I mean, all, yeah, you know, that's, part of it too and then i i can't imagine that the florida job is any more demanding than the alabama mm-hmm. one um i think the alabama one was probably less noise during the off season but that was because saban had the number one yeah. recruiting class every year napier was there right so what were you going to complain about the off season you're like we're not beating the second place team in recruiting by enough like that's the complaint by all the people, you know, it's, uh, you know, we should have, we should have had two people go and poison the trees over in Auburn. I mean, I don't know what you're complaining about if you're an Alabama fan during the off season right now during this era and while Napier was there. So, you know, I think there's still pressure. I think the noise that you felt, maybe the surprise is, is that the noise at Florida has been in the off season. Yeah. Whereas the noise at Alabama is during the regular season, where if you lose a game, all of a sudden you got, you, you know, you got Buddy from Tuscaloosa on there and Feinbaum saying Saban's lost and he needs to be fired. <laughs> As opposed to Florida, we're so PTSD from recruiting that <laughs> it's the middle of June. Everybody's like, what's going on? This recruiting class, like, you know, it, we're, we're not real concerned about, uh, like he can lose a game or two and people won't be going nuts, but you know, lose a recruit or two based on what's happened in the recent history. So the noise is just in a different spot. Maybe, maybe that's the difference. He was expecting it in October and he got it in June. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff there. But yeah, I mean, you know, you got people like me and you covering this team. So it is what it is. It is what it is. We get to have a lot of fun with it. I've, 
everything that I put forward at least has a chart behind it, man. So, <laughs> you know, like, like I, it's funny. I wrote a recruiting article today and I had a couple of people talk about me being glass half empty. I'm like, all I did was put up a chart and I gave you the interpretation of the chart. If the chart's wrong, tell me the chart's wrong. But, you know, the, those are the interpretations. And, you know, I, I think for the most part, our interpretations over the last four or five years have kind of proven out to be pretty, pretty accurate. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you say what you think and, you know, sometimes it makes you popular, sometimes it makes you unpopular, but you say what you think and, and, and hopefully people will come back and say, yeah, he said that two years ago. turns out he was right. <laughs> hey, and, we, you know, likewise, if I'm wrong, yeah. like I'll come back and say it. I, I think there were some things I said during the Molinera that were wrong and there are a couple that I've actually corrected on the record. So, yep. I mean, look, the, the, the way we approach it, we, you know, we try to be as accurate, truthful, honest um as, as we can so i think that's taking us a long way here uh, on how we do things but um all right well mentioned recruiting of course and that was the hot storyline and not so much positive back as we just discussed there in early june but lately we always kind of just pointed will you did yourself that august 1st deadline that you put in an article or reading reaction but also we were just looking at the timeline and the calendar and we knew a lot of decisions were going to come in late july and they did. Uh, and luckily, Florida was on the uh, plus side, positive side of all that. So, Will, let's take a look at, you know, just kind of right here the last few days, uh, dating back to last week and the commitments, of course. We were all looking at that July 28th date. And going in to July 28th, that a.m., that morning, Florida was ranked 23rd on the 24-7 sports composite with only 12 commits and that average of 90.53 there. But then on July 30th, when that's the last commit, of Florida guy of Jordan Castell and Andy Jean that jumped Florida up all the way from 23 to 12. Now 16 commits in the class and an average of 91.14. And that is after the commitments of Jakeem Jackson, the cornerback, wide receiver Aiden Mazzell, defensive back Jordan Castell, and wide receiver Andy Jean. So Will right there moving on up. Of course, there are the Gators and added four commits. All of those commits are four stars. All of those are from the state of Florida. And it's kind of just seemed to be the trend here, Will, is state of Florida kids and in that four-star range. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – look, I think Mizell obviously is the highest-ranked kid in the class. Yep. If they keep – they've brought in the highest-ranked kid in the class like three straight weeks now. <laughs> and, and if they do that for the next six weeks – I'll have no complaints about this recruiting class because eventually that means you're going to get the guys who are ranked 50th and 30th and 10th and that sort of stuff. And, and I think we still have a decent shot at some guys who are up in that range. Um, but Mizell was the first ranked guy in the class. Jackson's the fourth ranked. Castell's the sixth ranked. And Andy Jean's the 11th. So Jean ranked 332nd is the lowest of the four that they add. You got Mizell at 72nd, Jackson at 168, Castell at 202. More than anything, I mean, you know, you think about the defensive back class now that you've got mm -hmm. with Jackson and then Castell and then Sharif Denson, and then if you end up, and then if you bring in a guy like Cormani McLean, then obviously there's been a lot of noise about Dijon Johnson decommitting from Ohio State. And you got the and all Aaron, of a Aaron, Ga you Aaron Gates in there in there too. Oh yeah, yeah, Aaron Gates there as well. All of a sudden, you're talking about an unbelievable defensive back class. Same thing with wide receiver, right? You got Mizell, you got Eugene Wilson, your top two guys in there right now. Um, you know, and and then you got Tyree Patterson down there a little bit deeper there, and Andy Jean. So, um, you know, they're they're filling areas of need at wide receiver, which mm -hmm. is great. 
obviously it's a little bit heavy in some places and that's something i think we'll have to watch as we move forward because you know you you can't play 17 quarterback cornerbacks at once and so what's going to happen with guys like kamari wilson and then as these guys come in how much playing time are they going to get and then you know the portal exists and all those sorts of things but from the standpoint of the the talent that they added yeah they added four talented guys to the roster four guys who we should be glad are on the are on the uh, are in the recruiting class, and so uh, certainly ninety one point one four is higher than any of Dan Mullen's four classes. It's higher than any of Jim McElwain's three classes. Um, it's getting more towards a Will Muschamp class. It's not quite there yet, but it's getting more towards a Will Muschamp class. It's nowhere close to an Urban Meyer class, so. <laughs> and certainly well below Georgia and Alabama. So again, there's some good stuff and there's some bad stuff right now. Uh, they can close on some guys and, and raise that overall mm-hmm. score. Uh, the reason I target August 1st is because typically that score really stabilizes right around this time for two reasons. One is you've now got 16 commits who average 91, which means even if you bring in a guy who's ranked 99, so Cormani McLean is 99.78. If he commits, it only goes up to 91.65. Whereas if you have four commits and you bring in a five-star like McLean, well, all of a sudden now it goes up to you know 96. So it takes more to get the, to mm-hmm. get the score to go up. But the other reason is is that typically, you know, the guys you've already brought in kind of match the talent profile of the guys who are left on the board. And if you look at Florida's prospect list, that's really what you see. I mean, you see McLean is the guy they've really got to get. He's the five-star. You've got Dijon Johnson who's on there. You've got Jordan Hall who's on there who's ranked 120th. You've got Cameron James, um, defensive lineman out of Orlando, yep. who's ranked 188. And that's, you know, they've got guys like Lance Hurd who are sort of on their high choice. You know, 60, Monroe Freeling is 62nd, Kelby Collins is 70th. But that's sort of where they're looking at. And, and they're going to end up filling it up with some guys who are sitting there in that, you know, 300 to 400 range to get to the 25. And so you're going to have, yeah, you might get McClaney's ranked third, but you're going to get somebody who's ranked 450. And at the end of the day, the overall average isn't going to move all that much. And I think that's kind of where we're going to sit at. And so the question is, is that good enough or is it not? I think there are arguments for both sides, but I, I think the reality is is that we kind of know what we're going to get with this class. And uh, you know, that's, that's what the article was about today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, you know, that late July push, it, it gives a lot of hope uh, moving forward. But, you know, that hope you know, should be tempered. You know, I never expect the top five class, even though, you know, bump class historically needs to be there. We know that needs eventually to be there if you want to compete in this conference year in and year out. Uh, but certainly signs of, of progress there. Uh, and, Will, you brought up the, the, the names there. Cameron James, um, you'll see what Will Norman from IMG does. Caden McDonald, another defensive tackle uh, out there. And that's what Florida's probably looking at. Jordan Hall, I uh, don't think a decision anytime soon. So my, 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 my thought there is, you know, James, Norman, McDonald, you know, these defensive linemen there. If Hall doesn't make a decision soon, I think it's a you know, Florida-Georgia FSU battle anyway. If you hit some of your early targets, you know, I, I say, especially a defensive tackle, whoever you could get right now on August 3rd. Sign seven of those guys. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Whoever you could get, you, you bring those guys in the class. And if that means somebody misses out, I'm, oh, well, I'm sorry. If, if I get 
you know, five, six guys that are ready to be, be Gators right now at that position of need. And look, the targets there are nice targets to begin with. So, you know, Florida's not going to be reaching here at defensive tackle. Now, could they miss because they want to get some guys in later on? Could they miss a higher-end guy? Maybe. But at, at, at this point, I think you need the numbers right there at defensive tackle. And offensive, it, when you start talking about class balance, and if you get a McLean, you know, of course you're going to fill it in on the bottom end too. That's probably where offensive line is looking now, unless some flips happen down the road. Maybe linebacker as well, you know, but uh, you know, we've hear, heard the last couple of days about Jaden Robinson maybe possibly flipping there from South Carolina uh, towards Florida out of Columbia High School. But he's in that, I believe, three – 340, 350 range, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, you may get somebody like McLean, but with the positions of offensive line and linebacker where you've kind of missed so far, are you going to now have to reach at those positions? Because those top targets right now, you've missed at at those two positions. So that's why we say, yeah, yeah, you may get somebody like McLean, and he's certainly going to help the class and boost the class. But if you're looking for the, the ranking jump and if you're looking for the average player jump, that's why you said, Will, you know, right here where we're looking at late July, that may not happen uh, into that elite range. Well, and even if it does, this year's a little bit of a unique year in that if you think about it, teams like Notre Dame and Miami and Oregon and USC. Um, I want to know, know where you're going to go with this because I, I was going to make a point, too. So you might be going where I was going to go with this. Go well, I'm just going to say all of those all of those teams had coaching transitions. Uh-huh. And so last year, we're sort of down where Florida was. And now all of those teams have taken a step up when it comes to recruiting. There's no doubt that Miami under Cristobal is recruiting better than they did under Manny Diaz. There's no doubt that Notre Dame is recruiting better than better than they did under Brian Kelly, right? And Oregon seems to be doing really well under Dan Lanning. We expect USC to do really well with, uh, with uh, I can't remember his name, hey, where, the Oklahoma you, turncoat. Uh, Lincoln Riley. <laughs> Lincoln Riley, Oklahoma is going to be a solid, going to be solid competition. So big time programs had turnover there. The transition. So Florida didn't really have an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that there were those transition classes and those schools all dropped. It's really top heavy this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at it, Alabama's just got an unbelievable class. A&M's only, only got eight guys committed, but their average ranking is 93 and a half. And like a point is an enormous difference when it comes to these things. When I'm say when I say a 93 and a 94, that's not the same thing. Alabama's at 94.9. And the number two is 93.5 at Texas A&M. Alabama has four five stars already at 276 points with 16 commits. And before so and before you go further, Will, just so people don't get you know, where we're going here, we're not asking Billy Napier to recruit Alabama's level. We're just pointing out <laughs> where where that is right now. Well, I mean, I think I think what we need to talk about is what do those points mean? Yeah. And in the SEC, they mean a lot. So Alabama's at 94.9, AM's at 93.5, Georgia's at 93.1. Then you've got LSU at 91.7 and Florida at 91.1. That means Florida's fifth in the conference in terms of average player ranking. So they've gotten a lot of great players. And if you were to tell me Florida and LSU are going to be about equivalent from a talent perspective based on these classes, I would say, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you that Georgia – Texas A&M and Alabama clearly have more talented players. And what that means is is that over the long haul, if you look at 
if you look at recruiting in conference, and that's really the thing I think you need to look at. It's one of the reasons why Clemson was able to build the way they were is there was nobody else in the conference who was recruiting. So they could recruit 12th, 13th, 14th. It didn't matter. The only team in front of them was Florida State. And then when Florida State took a step back, Clemson was ready to take advantage and can beat, you know, it's a whole lot easier to win that conference when you got to beat Louisville and, you know, Georgia Tech and, and Pitt, right? Like they're, they're like you get Vandy if you're in the East. But other than that, these other teams are, get, are getting pretty good. So that to me is actually the concerning part when you look at Florida is they're 14th overall in quality of player at 91.14. Last year when we looked at it, it was like, all right, you know, they were like 75th or something at one point. I'm like, this isn't going to be a problem. <laughs> they're going to end up in the top yeah. 20 easily because – yeah, they won't sign as many guys, but they're going to have high-quality guys. I think they were like 88.8 last year. So that's my concern with this class is just who you're behind. It's not necessarily the quality of the players on Florida's roster. Right. It's the it's the bunching of the quality of players at teams, particularly in the SEC up above Florida. And, you know, look, Cristobal has a lot to do with that. I mean, I think if Manny Diaz was still at Miami, that right. uh, Billy yep. Napier would have brought in some of those guys there. And all of a sudden now you're looking at it saying, hey, look what we've got. We brought in a guy like uh, like Malioga or mm. or Jaden Rashada decides to come to game. That's about – yeah, and well, that's about the only thing that probably surprises me. You know, like I said, you know, going back and maybe forecasting a little bit. I didn't expect the top five class, but – at the same time, I expected maybe – and look, Florida's not that far behind in Miami right now after this recent jump. But, you know, I, I expected maybe a little level, a little more balance between Florida and Miami. I, I knew Mario Cristobal was going to recruit well at Miami. He recruited well at Oregon. There was no way he was not going to recruit well. And the way he's been recruiting, he's still got those prior relationships from Oregon that kind of have really paid off <laughs> right now that you, you keep hearing these recruits talk about. And, yeah, you know, I've been talking to him since he was at Oregon, especially for those West Coast kids, and that, that's kind of where that background has come um, right, right, right there. A little bit, you know, the, Florida has shrunk the gap in that July 28th through 31st range, but that was probably the, the biggest surprise to me is how much of an effect – Miami had on, on Florida's class. Let me go back and look at it right now. Yeah, I mean, the biggest surprise to me, actually, and, and we, we've glossed over it because of the great players that came in this weekend, but the biggest surprise and perhaps the biggest disappointment for me is the Peyton Kirkland, Derek LeBlanc, Malik yeah. Bryant right. going going elsewhere. And because when we looked, we looked very, very early when Billy Napier took over and we looked mm-hmm. at the rankings and we, you know, I remember drawing a line around, drawing essentially a circle around Gainesville with a 150 mile radius. And I said, all right, let's look at the players in that 150 mile radius. And there were probably 35 or 36 players in that radius where if he got who he wanted, he was going to have a top five class. Yep. So, you know, the problem is, is the, the circle around Gainesville is leaky. And they're going to have to fix that. And I think they have started to fix that when you look at some of the guys who have been brought in over the last week or two. Yeah, but I mean, 14, that needs to get fixed. You know, 14 from the state of Florida, you know, still. But as you said, you know, you look at those three guys you just mentioned. And when we were looking at that list in February, we were like, yeah, okay. And there we go. That's a, you, get, you take advantage there. And Florida's been able to take advantage elsewhere. But it's some of those big prospects. Of course, that's where we talk about you know the average and, and being different right there. So, uh, well, one more uh, storyline I, I can see. You probably got something else. One more I'll, I'll bring up. And when you look at the rankings, I do wonder. You know, if Florida's probably going to be top on the top end eight, and then bottom end ten, twelve, probably right there. I think Florida's going to be in that eight to twelve range when it's all said and done. 
I don't know if the gap's going to be that big between all those teams that finish right there. As you said, uh, there is a clear separation of what Alabama and Georgia, Ohio State, and as far as player average goes, Texas A&M's doing. I don't know how they'll finish. But in that, you know, start where around Miami is, you know, Miami and Oregon and LSU and Tennessee, Florida. I do, I mean, I do wonder, I, I know everybody will take a look at where you rank. And we, this will take a lot of research and, and go back. But what does, you know, what is the quote unquote gap of those teams from seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. Just like you never evaluate a recruiting class on one recruit. You really don't evaluate a, a class based on ranking either. What you do is you try to put an amalgam of different things together and use that to analyze how things are going. So if Napier puts together the 12th ranked class this year and the third ranked class next year, the third ranked class doesn't immediately make them a contender. <laughs> what it does is you now have a balance of the third ranked class, the 12th ranked class, and the 17th ranked class from last year. And that's what your roster looks like, right? So this is a roster construction type type of type type of operation so it's a multi-year thing the thing about this class in particular though is napier hadn't played a game yet which means that nobody can say anything about what's going to happen on the field And in fact if you think back to nick saban he goes seven and five in his first year in alabama loses to louisiana monroe still brings in a, the number three ranked class kirby smart goes eight and five had that awful loss to tennessee on the hail mary from eason that they complete and then the hail mary from dobbs they lost like 13 lost, seconds left. they lost to vanderbilt they lost to Vanderbilt. You know, so the idea that you show – and they had the third-ranked class coming in for, for their bump class. And so I think Florida had a longer way to go than Georgia did. I actually think Alabama had a pretty pretty far way to go too. Um, but you start thinking about these guys didn't show it on the field and then bring in elite recruits. What they did was they brought in elite recruits um, – despite what they were showing on the field. And so I've heard a lot um, of people talk about, well, you know, if Florida beats Utah and Kentucky and and Tennessee and is going into LSU and they don't have any losses, well, then everybody's going to start to commit to Florida. Well, first off, that's not what the board says. <laughs> the board says that, you know, we're going to end up kind of where we are right now. And maybe that's eighth, maybe it's 10th, maybe it's 12th. Again, that number doesn't concern me. What concerns me is that when you look at last year's talent when you look at the talent mall and left behind when you look at the imbalance in the roster when you look at all that stuff you got to say how are we going to compete with a team like alabama or a team like georgia or a team like texas a&m because that's who we're and lsu even because those are the teams we're playing against and you know the answer is going to be that things have to improve next year now all that being said i think there are a couple of things that that are promising to take from this one is that Napier's ranking, especially if he brings in McLean and Johnson, is going to jump higher than anything Dan Mullen ever had. So from a talent, from a pure talent perspective, Florida's going to be closer if Napier can continue this level of recruiting. Like let's say it peters out, you know, let's say he gets McLean and Johnson, he's up around ninety one point seven, and that's kind of where they finish, right? Almost at ninety two is a point, a point and a half better than anything Dan Mullen put together. And like I said, a point is significant. So there's, it's going to be a more talented team. The question is, is it going to be talented enough? The other aspect of that is, and I think this is one thing that, that that's important to note, is NIL's completely changed the landscape. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that really sort of made me, not anti-Mullen, but made me apathetic when he was let go, is that there was no 
progress being shown in the recruiting trail. And so getting up to 91.7 from 88.8 last year is progress on the recruiting trail. It's not where you want to be. I think it's probably going to start to level out next year. And I think that's that's the concern that I have is that it's not going to go from 88 to 91 to 94. Is My concern is it's going to go from 88 to 91 to 91 and a half to 92. And we're going to sort of see things start to peter out. And then you've got that talent gap. But no, I agree with you. I mean, I wouldn't stress about, oh, we – so I'm not going to say, well, we didn't make it in the top 10, so this is a failure. But I don't think anybody should say we made it into the top 10, so it's a success, Mm -hmm. right? What you need to do is look at, did they get the players that they were going after? Did they beat the rivals? Did they keep people in the state? Did they position themselves to be effective in the SEC? Did they position themselves to be effective nationally? Those are the questions we need to be asking. I I think there's some concern that I have that that all of those questions are not asked and are not answered in the affirmative. But those are the questions I think you want to be asking, not necessarily were we ninth, tenth, eleventh, or twelfth. Yeah, and then one more thing about the the season plays out. All right, say Florida gets two, three more commits that puts them at nineteen going into the season. Okay, if the season's going to make that much of a difference, you don't have that much room to add anyway, and you pretty much know who the targets already are. <laughs> the whole board's not going to change because Florida starts winning football games. You pretty much know who Florida's going after right now uh, to, to, to finish this class out. Well, and historically, it, it's funny because winning does matter, but it doesn't matter for this class, right? So winning in 2022 mm-hmm. does not produce traditionally a better 2023 class what it does is it spearheads better recruiting in in the coming years now that's not always the case because dan mullen's best recruiting class from a player ranking was his transition class he was like 91.75 or 90.75 and never got higher than that in his time in gainesville and he was winning games left and right those first couple of games what do you go 21 and 21 and 5 mm-hmm. or something his first two years big win over michigan in the bowl game they were fully with Felipe Franks beat Michigan in the Orange or not Michigan beat uh, Virginia in the Orange Bowl. You know, the the program had a lot of momentum, and even then, tra- even even with the difficulties in 2020, you know, Trask was out there firing bullets around. You got you got uh, you got Pitts going in the NFL as high as any tight end ever. Like there's a lot of stuff that you could sell if you were going out on the recruiting trail and selling it. The, the problem is that we weren't doing a very good job of going out on the recruiting trail and selling those things. So that'll be the question, right, is if you're looking at the 2024 class, that's where you're going to see any benefits that you reap from the 2023 class. But, you know, if you're relying on Napier to win a bunch of games to bring in guys for this class, one, I don't think that, sh- that shows up in the data. But the other aspect of it is, is then you got to ask yourself the other question. Who shows up if you don't win those games? I've always, right? that's, because- that's where I've always said, like, I don't know. I don't think winning really helps you all that much. Losing does hurt you a whole lot. Well, I, I think losing hurts you if if the – staff is perceived as a losing staff that's lost control of the program. Again, I go back to all these guys who took Mm -hmm. over Saban smart Jimbo Fisher. You think about Jimbo Fisher when he took over at Florida state for Bobby Bowden. You think about Dabo when he took over at Clemson. I probably should have, yeah, I probably should have made that clear. I meant going on and down the road. Yeah. Like this year, I don't think, you know, winning or losing, I don't really think has that much of an effect. No, but it, it's also one of those things. I mean, I think we've had this chicken and the egg argument with lots of different people. Yeah. Um, the, the question is, did Courtney Upshaw help? help, And did Dante Hightower is, is that, and Mark Ingram, is that why Nick Saban was able to win? Yeah. Did Mark Ingram commit to the program before Nick Saban had had a good year at Alabama? 
Yeah. What about Dante Hightower? Yeah. What about Courtney Upshaw? Yeah. So those guys had all committed before Saban had shown any winning. And those are the guys who sort of took Alabama to that first level when they were able to take down Florida in 2009. So which one is it, right? Is it that you have to get those elite guys to come in to be, to create the winning culture and then the winning begets winning. And, you know, also we're a little bit, the, 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 the catch 22 here is that Nick Saban is a transcendent college football coach. Mm -hmm. And so I think in some ways, because urban Meyer had an opportunity to be, and then was not, you sort of put those two on equal footing and the programs on equal footing, but Alabama is a better program than when Nick Saban took over. And I think Florida for a decade has been sort of floundering around. And so there's a gap between those two and Napier's job is to close that gap. So look, I'm a process guy. I want to know if the process is good. What we've heard so far is that the recruiting process is better than it was under Dan Mullen. I think we're seeing that in the results at the same time. That doesn't mean it can't get better. And that's something we'll have to, we'll have to pay attention to. Yep. Like this recent run, uh, like the concentration on the state of Florida. We know that was one big, you talk about process. Well, that was one part of the process. They had to get a whole lot better. Uh, and now it's just time, you know, to get the elites and the elites in the state. That's pretty much, uh, you know, where, where, where we, where we need to go from there. Uh, no need to, to keep beating that. We'll see how Florida finishes out this class. We know all the targets that are out there. We went over a few here, uh, and we'll see, you know, if the good news continues, uh, coming up for the Gators. In the coming weeks, so well, yeah, good look there, um, everybody. If you want to go look, I know the a lot of us were tired of the Clemson comparison, but Will throws out the comparison to Jimbo Fisher and Texas A and M in the article. Uh, so good stuff there, Will. People, we, we don't we don't want to give away all the articles, so people actually go read it. There's different parameters uh, there that our good friend Bill Sykes put in uh, for, for for bump classes and the you know the which what you need to hit. Uh, certain levels of, and you go through and put percentages of all on all those parameters. So good look there. Yeah, it's the psych standard. I got I got to bring that up because he 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 wrote that years ago, and it's still it's still relevant every every time I look at it. But uh, yes, yeah, so we got that over there. We've also got a. Uh, an article by Nick. He he wrote an article about Anthony Richardson and what he has to do to win the Heisman. He's not saying he's going to win the Heisman. Yeah. Guys. <laughs> what he's saying is, what does he have to do to win the Heisman? And he went and looked all the way back to Carson Palmer at all the quarterbacks who've won Heisman trophies. So if you don't want to read about Carson Palmer or any of the other guys who won Heismans, you can just sort of scroll down to the bottom where he talks about what that <laughs> means for Anthony Richardson. Because look, there have been guys who've run for Heisman trophies from the quarterback position. Guys like Cam Newton. There have been guys like Matt Leinart who were able to chuck the ball and and win the Heisman Trophy. The question is, you know, what kind of combination of those sort of stats would Anthony Richardson need to put up? Because it is interesting. Like, you look at all of these lists. You look at Lindy's. You look at Athlon. You look at, you know, all the previews. And most of them have Anthony Richardson. I think PFF had him, like, 30th overall as, as quarterbacks in the country. And then you look at the Heisman odds, and he's, like, seventh. <laughs> In all the Heisman odds. And so what that says is, one, people know that if you win the SEC or even if you win the East, you're probably in the running for a Heisman. But the other thing that it says is that everybody realizes that, yeah, he might struggle, but he has the upside to give you a Heisman run. So that's what Nick sort of wrote about is what does that upside have to look like in order to accomplish that? I thought it was kind of a cool look. Yeah. The, the, look, to me, it, it can't be it can't be 2007. You know, it took – you know, Florida had four losses. Tim Tebow still wins to Heisman, and part of that was it was a crazy season. You know, there was not one team who stood out. Like to win the Heisman this year, you're going to have to beat a really good Alabama team and a really good Bryce Young. You know, you kind of like going back to 2020 when Kyle Trask was in the mix. His only chance of winning was going to Atlanta 
and beating that team uh, and walking away with the Heisman Trophy. So this isn't going to be a this isn't going to be a 2007 Tebow where you go you go eight and four, but your stats were so good you, you get it anyway. I mean, the national championship that national champion that year was LSU, two losses. You know, you're going to have to if you're going to do it this year as Anthony Richardson. It's going to be a special season for Anthony Richardson, and it's going to be a very special season for Florida. Well, remember that Tebow season in in some ways is interesting, too, because they're coming off the national championship, but there's still questions about Urban Meyer's offense. And all of a sudden, the offense just clicks. I mean, they scored 43 points a game that year with Tebow in charge. The other thing is they lose to Auburn and they lose to LSU in just sort of that slugfest where Les Miles like went unconscious and just went forward on fourth down every time you had an opportunity. They lose the game to Georgia where Georgia comes out on the field and dances like a bunch of fools. And then they go on, on a run against Vandy, South Carolina, uh, Florida Atlantic, and Florida State. Lose that game in Michigan that was just, you know, the defense couldn't stop anybody felt a lot like 2020 actually but the teams they lost to right auburn lsu georgia um and, and even michigan at the end were teams that you looked at and said okay these are good quality teams right there's there's no loss to tennessee in there there's no loss to vanderbilt there's no loss to south carolina there's no loss to florida state in fact those were all blowouts and that i think is the difference so you think about the game you know to be honest i think trask lost the heisman trophy in many ways a couple of years ago was sort of, I mean, he was putting up pretty good performances, but there mm-hmm. were a couple of duds. And, you know, the games against Kentucky and the game against Tennessee and, you know, sort of those games where Florida won like 30 to 10, but it was, they didn't really put their, their foot on the opponent's throat. And then the LSU game, obviously, he struggled a little bit, played real well in the second half, but struggled a little bit, especially in the first half. Fumble gets returned for a touchdown, a couple of picks. And, you know, all of a sudden, Florida loses that game and there go his shot. So, um, yeah, like you're, you're right. I mean, Florida's going to have to get lucky in order for Richardson to win the Heisman, but they're going to be put in a position to be lucky if Richardson turns out to be special to have an opportunity, right? Now, whether he can come through, even, you know, you talked about this earlier. We're going to see whether he can come through. If he does come through in those sorts of situations, he's going to have an opportunity because I do think that he has the capability of being being special, Not even even if he's not consistent. The explosiveness that he showed last year means that, you know, if you're up by six against Florida, you're not going to feel comfortable. Because at any point, Anthony Richardson can put you a point behind. And uh, and it's fun because we haven't had a guy like that around for a while. Yeah. I mean, I just it, it, it's simple. If he if he's hoisting the Heisman Trophy, Florida's in Atlanta. I mean, that's that's I mean, that's to me that's what it's gonna take. And you know, that's that's just the I think that's the the relationship right there of a Heisman Trophy. <laughs> And if he's not, then we're not going to Atlanta. <laughs> Correct. Like, yeah, there you like, go. Honestly, I'll, I'll probably agree with you there. Yeah, if he's not in, if he's not in the Heisman running, then Florida's probably not going to Atlanta. Well, and he's in the Heisman running because he played well against LSU, Georgia. Yes, Texas right, exactly. There, yes, yes. In that stretch, right? He he will have the high profile games. Oh yeah, and can probably even have a loss in there amongst those three. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, and and as long as he plays well, he's going to be in the running. So he'll have the he'll have the ability to showcase his wares. Um, well, I can't wait. Will I mean after week one, he's going to have this blowout performance, and you know everybody's going to. Well, here's after week one. Here's your Heisman favorites, and Anthony Richards is going to be is going to be on there. Well, now you're <laughs> ruining my Utah preview. So. Uh, <laughs> it's already three quarters of the way written, buddy. I'm ahead of the I'm ahead of the game this year. Oh, well, there we go. There we go. That's the big one. That's the big one. We'll get started early. So. Yeah, well, that never happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, yeah, anything else coming up, reading reaction uh, before this, you know, four more weeks before we get to see that Utah preview? 
Yeah, I got about three or four things that are about three quarters of the way finished. So, um, had some had some personal stuff go on with with, with the family, so I had to do some traveling. So, uh, apologize having had as much up on the site as I would have liked to. But we'll have Stetson Minute articles coming up pretty soon. Got something like I mentioned about Utah to preview that game, and uh, and probably a little bit. One of the things that I've been asked um, asked about is is you know, how often do these rankings change? Just, you know, a guy who's ranked 70th, how often does he drop to 120th? How often does he go up to 50th? So starting to take a look at that and seeing if I can at least put some numbers around how often does it happen and does it matter, right? Because I know everybody gets all up in arms when somebody drops from 30th to 40th. Um, you know, does it matter and does it affect your class? Those are sort of the things we'll be looking at. Good deal, good deal. You can find it at readreaction.com. Reed will 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 read to you on the YouTube version. So that's uh, that that's still doing well, Will. Maybe. Yeah, it's doing great. I yeah. actually have to record the most recent article. I fell asleep last night, so, <laughs> uh, so I got to record that when we're done here. But if you, you put yourself hear my you put yourself tones, to, your voice put yourself to sleep. <laughs> yeah, if you want to hear my dulcet tones, you can you can go over there and uh, and listen on the YouTube channel and. Uh, all the articles get read to you if you don't want to read them on the page. So, all right, sounds good. Sounds good. As I said, you know, uh, you can check out the, our conversation preview of that with Derek Wingo uh, right here on YouTube as well. Uh, but you can find Will Miles on Twitter at Will Miles SEC, and you can find the site readreaction.com. I'm your host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thank you for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.